the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You are listening to the Advanced Colorado Rundown, Colorado's conservative podcast, providing insight and thought-provoking discussions on Colorado's most critical policy issues. Let's join Michael Fields for today's edition. George Brockler with Advanced Colorado. Uh, It'll be a surprise to nobody. Crime is a growing issue for the state of Colorado. We're going to get made a lot smarter on that topic by a subject matter expert. Pleased to have with us right now, District Attorney John Kellner. How are you? Thanks for having me here, George. Appreciate it. It's good to have you. Um, Before we begin, before anybody starts listening to the words that come out of your mouth, I want to get to know a little bit more about you and how did you end up becoming the District Attorney of the largest, most consequential, most populous jurisdiction with the best-looking people in it. You sound like you know of it. I've heard of it. Yeah, so uh, thanks for that, and appreciate you having me on here to talk about this. I mean, I'm a lifelong career prosecutor. I've been doing this, uh, trying to seek justice for people, really, ever since I got out of law school. So I became a judge advocate in the Marine Corps, did that on active duty for five years. was getting back from Afghanistan, sort of late 2010, and thinking, okay, where do I want to go from here? You know, I wanted to continue serving. So I had an opportunity to join the Boulder District Attorney's Office oh, wow. uh, early 2011. Yeah. You know, I'd reached out to you, if you, you remember did. this. I, I reached out to that. you because I met you as a young judge advocate. That's when right. I was a captain, you were a major in the Army. I was in the Marine Corps. Better service. Similar, but not as good. But go on. Mm-hmm. And, and you had always been a resource to me you know, as yep. an advocate. And so I became a prosecutor in the state system and you know, worked in Boulder for about a year and a half, two years before you hired me on. Day one. Day one of your administration in the 18th Judicial District. I worked my way up there. You did. You know, senior deputy, chief deputy, was prosecutor of the year for the entire state of Colorado. I was prosecutor of the year for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Oh, you know, really right, just right. been you know, doing this job for a long time. was ultimately elected uh, in 2020 to you know, fill your shoes. Yeah, I don't know that because you got big feet, and I, I have these little geisha-like feet. Um, but I did promote you all the way to running pretty much the Douglas, Elbert, and Lincoln operations, and then you decided, you know what the heck, I think I'll try to do the whole jurisdiction, and it worked out well. From your perch where you are this district attorney of this giant, it's got to be the most diverse jurisdiction in this region of the country, when you have everything from 40,000-acre ranches in Lincoln all the way to Aurora, Colorado. What is the current state of crime, not just in your jurisdiction, but statewide? What are you seeing? Yeah, one thing I know as the DA and then as somebody who was in the trenches, you know, fighting court day in, day out, you know, we're not localized to crime issues in Arapahoe. No criminal stops at a border, you know, a county line from Denver into Arapahoe or Arapahoe into Douglas and so on. You know, the issues that affect the Denver metro area and the criminals who are wreaking havoc they're not doing it in just one spot. You know, they're stealing cars in one jurisdiction, oftentimes you know, committing a crime in another jurisdiction and ditching the car there. So it's all really connected. And I say that because you know, people want to focus on it as it, it is a solely local issue. But the reality is that crime is very much a statewide problem, that we're seeing skyrocketing crime rates all across the board. 
in some respects, we're seeing them start to go down, especially in Douglas County in our part of the jurisdiction because of some of the approaches we're taking. But it is a statewide issue. Now, I know from when you worked for me, uh, we've been going to the legislature year in and year out, not so much in a here's how we can get aggressive on crime, but really in almost a defensive action trying to say, please don't continue to weaken our laws without going into the details of those laws yet. And I want to get there. The result of the last I'm going to go back 10 years now of legislative changes that have taken place. Where are we with things like motor vehicle theft, with violent crime? What are we seeing out there? A complete sort of denigration of the victim being the center of the legislative approach, as in we want to make the victim whole and we want to protect the community. Everything that I've seen, both as my perch as the DA, but then also as you know that line deputy and you know working for you is this step-by-step erosion where we're treating criminals more like the victims themselves and much less focus on community and public safety. And that's led us to places where we're number one in the country now for the motor vehicle theft rate. Amazing. And it's amazing too because it was about 10 years ago we were below the average. You know, so it's, it's something to really peel the layer back on the onion and say what were the steps that actually led us to this place where we are now? Because it doesn't happen by chance. You know, we're leading the country in a lot of other areas as well. I mean, we're skyrocketing catalytic converter thefts. You know, we're, we're leading in terms of things like uh, violent crime, you know, 25-year high in this state. So you know, it's not just uh, motor vehicle theft or property crimes. We're sort of taking the lead in a lot of respects. 40-year increase in the metro area in homicides, going back in homicides, just an incredible number of deaths that we're seeing and the violent crime surging. When you talk about going from 10 years ago being below the national average in, let's say, motor vehicle theft, and now we're leading every single state in America in per capita motor vehicle theft, talk to us about what are some of the things the legislature has done to create an environment where that's not only permissible but kind of tacitly encouraged. Yeah, you can see a pretty clear line. It's really more like an elbow graph uh, during some changes in the legislature. Is this the hockey stick that Al Gore talked about? Because that's... <laughs> it could be. Okay. Okay. But in all seriousness, uh, we're talking about a change where they said, you know what, we're going to basically say that the value of a vehicle is what's going to drive the criminal consequences. So if you steal a $100,000 know, car... Well, it's going to be a higher level offense. It's going to be a class three felony, for instance. And if you steal a lower valued car, $1,000 or less, that's going to be a class six felony or something to that effect. When the legislature started moving in that direction, uh, they really started to incentivize the lower level thefts of, and I say lower level, but they're very consequential to the people whose car is stolen. But they started to incentivize criminals to really take advantage of the poorest and most vulnerable mm-hmm. among us. Rather than just saying, look, a car is a car. I mean, you know, if you're a wealthy person with a $100,000 car, you've got some great Cadillac insurance. You know, I mean, you're going to have a rental car for two, three weeks and not be really concerned about it. Or you're going to take another car out of your garage. Right. If you've got a three or $4,000 car and that's all you got, and you're trying to take your kids to school or, you know, get to your job on time, Somebody takes away your transportation, it's incredibly impactful, much more so than even the wealthy person. But they started splitting that out, right? And over time, they've said, but for the lower level offenses, we also want you to ensure that they're getting PR bonds, that they're being released on a more frequent basis, that the consequences are more minimal. 
all of that just leads people uh, down that path. It's sort of like you know, water. They're going to go where there's the least resistance. Let's talk about the PR bond thing. First off, PR for folks that are watching that don't know personal recognizance bond. That's just you sign something that says, I promise to come back and come to court. What have we seen over the past few years with those? That's one. Two, what what led that sort of revolution in thinking? Because it wasn't like that when I started in prosecution. And what's the consequence? Well, you could tell us more about what's led that revolution because you actually saw that that trajectory start. You know, I'm sort of seeing it uh, on the tail end of things. So just going back to, let's say, 2021, there was a bill called Senate Bill 62 that Pete Lee, Senator Pete Lee, had put forward. And this was the wish list of sort of progressive uh, fantasies of how they're going to treat crime. And it was mostly for class four, five, and six felonies. So very serious offenses, felony crimes, um, mostly can't arrest for it or discouraged to arrest. And same thing for misdemeanors. The idea was to give them a ticket, basically a summons saying, hey, please show up to court in uh, 30 days, 45 days, and we'll deal with your consequence then, if any. But if they were arrested, the idea was that they were going to be released on that PR bond, the personal recognizance bond, practically immediately. So you, know, you may or may not even see a judge. You'll simply get a $1,000 PR bond, which sounds like $1,000, but the reality it's is not. it's not. It's just signing the piece of paper saying you'd show up to appear. With that bill, what made it even more of a travesty in my mind was that they actually said, you know, if you don't show up the first time, we can't issue an arrest warrant for you. And we don't show up the second time, still can't issue an arrest warrant. But the third time, now it's okay for maybe a police officer to knock on your door and bring you back to court. Now, that bill didn't pass, right? But it was really emblematic of the entire policy approach That's right. uh, that we've seen from Democrats. They're just continually pushing on that. As you look at some of the other recent legislative changes that have taken place that you think have added to the situation that we're in. What sticks out in your mind? You've been at the Capitol a ton testifying uh, opposed to a bunch of bills. You've done great work, obviously, on the victim side of things, getting some things passed through bipartisan legislation. But focus on the ones, if you would, that you think this is going to make it harder for me and my team or this is going to make it more pro-criminal. One of the things that that truly amazed me was when we had a 30 – you know, a, a, a spike in murders in Denver. I think it was a 50% increase in murders in Denver year over year. It was 34, 33% statewide. That with that as the backdrop of the stats that are out there, you know, folks in the legislature said, you know, it'd be a good idea this year. Let's lower the consequences for murders. And they literally changed what used to be a class one felony. So life without the possibility of parole for somebody who commits a egregious felony murder. So it could be a sexual assault. It could be a bank robbery. Um, It could be, you know, just some of the worst things that you imagine when they commit that crime and they kill somebody during it. That is now a class two felony. So I showed up at the Capitol saying, look, don't do this. All the reasons why focus on victims don't make it easier or less consequential for people to kill other members of our community. And they said, thank you very much. We're going to pass this bill anyway. But amazingly, I also saw district attorneys on the other side of that saying, we agree with this approach. There were also some changes that have taken place over the last few years regarding drugs 
Um, I remember at one point when I was the DA or right before we had changed to this wobbler system where we said, listen, we're not interested in convicting drug addicts of felonies and incarcerating them in prison and taking – we're interested in trying to get guys off of drugs. And so the system was set up in place to say if you engaged in felony possession, addict-like behavior, you could work your way through the system and end up with a misdemeanor. And that system wasn't without some controversy, but it seemed to work. For a while. In fact, we had a drug court. You guys have a very robust drug court that was doing great things up until all of a sudden the legislature changed the law. What did they do and where are we today? And what are you seeing as a result? Yeah, so 2019, there was a decriminalization bill. And, you know, I went up to the Capitol and I talked about this and they said, well, it's not decriminalizing, it's defelonizing. Well, defelonizing is not a word, but decriminalizing is, and it means to lower the consequences for something. And that's what they did. They lowered the consequences for the possession of hard drugs like meth, cocaine, heroin, and a a drug that we are all very familiar with now called fentanyl. And they basically said, look, if you possess less than four grams of this, we're going to consider that a user amount. That is a misdemeanor offense. It's no longer a felony. Now, look, when it was a felony, it was the low-level felony. Right. But it provided us some incentive to basically say to folks, look, this is a potential serious consequence for your future. You don't want to have a felony record. Why don't you engage in treatment? Why don't you try it? Let us help you get off of this stuff. In fact, if you do great, we might even dismiss your case entirely. But if you make it through treatment, you're looking at a misdemeanor offense. That was the standard operating right. procedure. They took that sort of stick away and made it just a carrot. And then guess what? Not as many people participate anymore. And what we've seen since then is a dramatic increase in fentanyl overdose deaths because people are not really concerned as much about uh, possessing hard drugs. And you, you hear four grams, you think, well, four grams is very little. Of course, people know by now that two milligrams of fentanyl is enough to take their life. So when you're talking about four grams, we're talking about maybe, what, 2,000 people? 2,000 people. Right, so that is a lot of potential death. Talk about for the uninitiated, for the folks that don't know the game that we do, just the change from felony to misdemeanor in terms of what takes place on the street with a police officer and they catch someone with fentanyl or some other drugs. What is that difference? Traditionally, at least it used to be that, hey, you got a felony offense, you're going to get booked into jail. You're probably going to spend a night in custody. You're going to see the judge the next day. You're going to be appointed a public defender or somebody to represent you if you can't afford it yourself. And there might be some monitored sobriety that goes along with it. Saying, hey, look, you know, we need to help you get off this stuff, so we're going to hold you accountable. You're not going to do drugs while your case is pending, and we're going to make sure you don't. When it became a misdemeanor, especially with the confluence of COVID, um, when there was a lot less arrests happening because they didn't want COVID to spread in the jails, what you started seeing was people just getting a ticket, um, basically saying, hey, please show up to Zoom court uh, in 30 days, 40 days, something like that. Now it's a please show up to court uh, 30, 40 days in person. But, you know, a lot of things happen in those 30, 40 days. And when you're dealing with a drug that is as deadly and can be as deadly as one pill can kill, like fentanyl, 30 to 40 days could be the difference between somebody showing up to court and then, you know, being dead and not making it there. When we talk about the bail and the bond, and this is part of it, too, if you just get a misdemeanor summons, an invitation, please come back to court, and you're not getting booked, you're not getting those court consequences, that's, that's one thing entirely. 
But when you're starting to see it, not just with drug addicts, but with the motor vehicle theft, all this other stuff, some of that was the consequence of COVID. But since then, have you noticed a change in the approach either by the bench or, or whomever? And does that lead to less, more crime on the streets? What are you seeing with the bail? Yeah, the more lenient the bail structure, uh, the more quickly people are released to potentially go commit another crime. A lot of motor vehicle theft were seen as repeat offenders. And we saw that before, just that typically in the past they'd have a bond where maybe it was $2,000, $3,000, and they were a little less leery about losing that money. Somebody had put it up for them. And so the idea is, hey, if you commit a crime while you're on bond, you're going to lose that money that was put up on your behalf. And so it was a bit of an incentive to obviously remain or try to be law-abiding. Every time we've seen this sort of undercutting of the justice system by being more lenient on criminals, you're going to get more of it. And because of this shift over the last 10 years, you know, we're seeing a ton of that. But it kind of goes deeper than that, George. It's not just the front end of the bail and the bond and the arrest stuff. It's the people we actually send to prison on these sentences where we're saying, hey, this person's going to go serve, let's say, 21 years to life potentially. And we find out that they're being released after seven, eight, nine years. Uh, During COVID, we saw about 2,000 additional discretionary parolees released from prison at the governor's order saying, look, we're going to let these people out. And a couple bad things happen. You know, predictably, uh, motor vehicle theft parolees, they are the property crimes, the people right. that say are the not victim property crimes. crimes. Yeah. And, and look, you have to work hard to get to prison in Colorado. You You're not just going to get there on your first or second offense, probably. Right. It's going to take a lot. So these people that are in prison are repeat motor vehicle thieves. Motor vehicle theft parolees increased by 81% in the <sighs> early goings of COVID. Now, guess what? Parole was largely remote. They waived appearances for all these people. So they're released with no safety network. Just cut loose. Just cut loose. So guess who we have back in jail, who we're trying to send back to prison now? Those same people. They also released a lot of gang members, uh, people that they thought might have been involved with property-type crimes. And we've seen... You know, crime when it comes to motor vehicle theft, organized crime, go from basically 0% to 6% of our cases Mm. now because they were released from prison, very little supervision, out on the streets, and finding very soft targets when it came to crime and working together. Who is setting the policy then for parole? Is this a legislative thing? Is this a gubernatorial thing? Who determines that? That's a combination of all the above. You know, we've got the governor who has pretty dramatic powers when it comes to his ability to commute sentences or to release people early. Uh, When it came to executive orders, he used that power during COVID to release a bunch of people. The idea of uh, truth in sentencing is something I'm very passionate about, right? Because I think that victims, even defendants, ought to know. And when they say 10 years, it means 10 years. doesn't mean like four or three and a half or something else that nobody really knows the answer. But the legislature is the one that's setting the guidelines and the boundaries for uh, parole, um, you know, how much time you have to serve on a different type of, of crime. When you talk about the, the different role players in there, first off, who appoints the parole board members? Yeah, that's the governor. I've heard of him. And when it comes to the legislature, we talked about you and I know other prosecutors and other stakeholders, victims groups have gone out to the legislature to fight for good bills and there have been a lot less of them, and to fight against bad bills, there are a lot, have been a lot more of them. 
What role does the attorney general of our state play in that process? The attorney general actually shows up uh, to support or not support a lot of different criminal justice bills. So going back to that Senate Bill 62, the one by Senator Pete Lee, that thing was so toxic in the end that he actually withdrew his own bill. And renumbered it. And renumbered it and basically put it back out there. And it still ultimately was defeated in the waning days of the 2021 session. But the attorney general, somebody who calls himself the chief law enforcement officer for the state of Colorado, showed up and endorsed that bill. So it puts that stamp of approval of somebody who's ostensibly involved in law enforcement saying, yeah, this is good. We should go forward with this. Another thing happened this session. You know, we're talking about felons in possession of firearms. I'm glad you brought this up. I was going to ask you about that, too. Yeah. So some uh, interesting things happen. You know, people name bill titles that uh, like the unicorns and puppy bill. And it's actually (laughs) something to do with that. right. Right. Well, last year they had a bill called misdemeanor reform. And this was a 330 page bill. Huge. You would think with a name like that, it's about misdemeanors, right? Yeah, it's in the title. It seems like it would yeah. be appropriate. Well, it turns out that buried inside, there were some changes to felony laws as well. One of those felony laws being possession of a weapon by a previous offender, or what we might call the felon in possession law. So look, if you're a convicted felon, you can't pass a background check, yeah. you can't possess a firearm. Right. There's a lot of good public policy reasons to that. I think that's keeping the guns out of the wrong hands. And it's something that... Uh, is a pretty hot topic, right? You're hearing a lot of people talk oh, yeah. about you know, gun control and gun safety. Expanded background checks, all this other stuff. And, and here is a very prime example of where the legislature could have done something and didn't that would have been very helpful. So in 2021, they passed this misdemeanor reform bill, and they basically gut the felon in possession law, saying for most felony offenses that you've been convicted of, it is now no longer a crime to possess a firearm. What? So more felons in possession of guns. Well, why? Why As in the a, world would they do that? It is a great question. Well, it makes zero sense to me. Well, first off, it sounds like it became the law, which means we know how the governor weighed in on it. Did the attorney general show up on this bill too? Yeah, he supported that misdemeanor what? reform bill. Okay. Right? So I said, look, you guys may not have noticed this. Let's be charitable. Buried inside this bill was a profound change to a law that keeps people safe, Right. Uh, we worked all throughout the summer. We tried to get them to change that, to add a bunch of felonies back in, to say, look, if you've been convicted of some serious offenses, you shouldn't be able to possess that like firearm. drug dealing. Felony drug dealing. These same people who are selling fentanyl that kills somebody, have been convicted of that, had their due process. That person could potentially still possess a firearm. What about your car thieves and stuff? And you pointed out at the beginning... People aren't stealing cars so they can go take a nap in them and beat the snow. I mean, they are stealing cars to go commit other crimes, as you talked about. Of course, if they're convicted, they can't possess firearms. Well, you would have thought so. But that law change that they passed now enables aggravated motor vehicle thieves. So repeat car thieves, (gasps) big bad people who've been convicted of those felony offenses to possess firearms. And I was advocating at the legislature all this year to fix that. So it's not just a you know personal safety issue, a community safety issue. Yeah. It's also officer safety. You know, we've seen these situations where if somebody's in a stolen car, they've got a gun, they're a convicted felon, they might elude, they might take some shots at the police. And you have to think about proactive policing. If they had contacted that person before that situation, found them in possession of that gun, took that gun out of circulation, put that felon back behind bars because they were breaking the law, 
We prevented, you know, a potential armed robbery. We prevented a, a right. car theft. Right. And you take that tool away from officers. That's what they did. Well, the good news is you went back to the legislature this year. They decided, yikes, we did screw this up. Let's fix it. And so now, after the change in the law this year, by the way, did the governor sign it? The new change? Yeah. Yeah, he signed it. So clearly now, drug dealers and car thieves can no longer legally possess firearms in Colorado. That is not the case. What? Actually, they can still possess oh. firearms. They did not fix it. And like a lot of things that are happening in the legislature these days, sort of half-measure solutions, right? They can't get things uh, past that really deal with the heart of the issue. Um, it's pretty tragic, frankly, what we're seeing up there. So they did pass a bill that added some additional felonies back in, but not those two most consequential ones, car theft and drug dealing. If I was to ask you uh, to just give us a list of maybe three things, and I'm sure you have a list of a billion, but what three things could policymakers do that would make a positive difference to try to get control of this crime tsunami and bring it back down to earth? we got to ditch this bail reform stuff that's really just making life easier for people who are intent on committing crimes over and over again. Uh, it's not been good for us. We've not seen positive public safety returns on that. Got to support the police. I mean, we went back to 2020 and you see the the bill that took away qualified immunity from them. Uh, you know, as a DA, you know this very well. Yeah. You got to review every single officer involved shooting that takes place. And you've got to write a public report about your decision. That's right. Whatever it is you decide to do. Did they commit a crime or not? And you also know from your military time, like the decisions you make in these very stressful moments, which could be split-second decisions to fire or not fire, um, you know, they're not made lightly. They're made after a lot of training, right? But you also have to recognize it's hard to put yourself in that, that exact position. And so to take away qualified immunity like they did and really demoralize police all across the state so we are down officers in Denver or down officers in Aurora, yeah. all across the state is struggling to recruit and retain quality officers because of this sort of um, focus on officers as being the bad guys rather than criminals, and the last thing I, I think would be very helpful is truth in sentencing. So, you know, this idea that a judge can impose a sentence that actually means what he or she says it means, rather than this idea that, hey, you could serve 30, 40% of your time and be released. You know, people ought to be serving, like in the federal system, 85% of their time on every single offense. That way we know we're fashioning sentences that actually protect the public for a defined period of time. Well, let's just use a quick hypothetical here that sort of highlights that, and that is um, hit and run or DUI causing death, vehicular homicide, mm -hmm. let's call it. Each one of those charges is a third-class felony, but it's not a crime of violence. It's punishable by 4 to 12 years in the Department of Corrections, but it's probation eligible. Somebody opens the paper, they read, vehicular homicide, judge gave them 12 years. Even that seems low to me, but... Yep. Practically speaking, when is that person going to get their first look at parole? Probably after four, four and a half years. That's amazing. Right. Um, and, and I agree with you on the truth in sentencing. Is it different if you get a crime of violence? Yeah, it goes up, you know, but it's still subject to an early release. So you're really looking at you know, maybe somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. Uh, and they could even potentially transition to a you know, halfway house or something like that 
earlier. I think the other thing that we've discovered over the past year is some really smart and good-looking fellows at the Common Sense Institute did a study on the economic impact of some of this crime and determined that uh, over the last year, it was $27 billion of impact Mm -hmm. on the economy. That is the old budget almost. I mean, why granted we're up around 38 billion right now for the state, but it is not inconsequential. It is not just that individual who suffers that victimization. It is a broader ripple effect that washes over the community. That's a really important thing to talk about that was frankly missing quite a bit from this debate at the Capitol during the fentanyl legislation. So go ahead, Mark. What we saw happen there was very much a focus on who are the people uh, who are using drugs, and what can we do to help them? And look, I'm okay with that idea that we want to get addicts off of drugs. I get it. But you also have to look at what is, what is the impact on the community? What else is happening? So if you look at our data, and you know we're the most data-driven DA's office in the yep. state, you know, and we share most of it publicly whenever we can, we used to see a couple hundred cases be charged as just possession, right? just a possession of drugs, yeah, yeah. but no other other charge. Now we're seeing that about triple. So about 600 cases in a year where they're charged with possession of drugs plus another offense. And what that tells me is that people are you know, committing other crimes, burglaries, auto thefts, to feed a drug habit. And that ripple effect on the community is real. You know, and frankly, we, we don't need to tolerate it, but uh, we've taken, or at least the legislature's made a decision that they want to. John Kellner, District Attorney for the 18th Judicial District. Wrap up comments. If you're going to leave someone who's trying to get their arms around this crime tsunami and sort of where we're at, what do you leave them with? I think one of the uh, biggest pushback arguments I get from people when I talk about the crime issues in our state is people saying, well, it's, it's bad everywhere, right? It's bad across the entire country. That is not a fair thing to say. Because we're actually ahead of most other states. So anybody in the tries, wrong way, in the wrong way, if anybody tries to say, well, it's just because of COVID, push back on them. You know, there is a reason why we are number one in the country for auto, automobile theft. It's outpacing everybody else because of policy decisions. We are, I believe, number four in the country for property crime now. Again, we're not even in the middle of the pack. We're outpacing everybody else. We're number two in the country for the highest rate of overdose increased deaths for fentanyl. Behind only Alaska. And they have oh. very few people. So if anything changes there, it makes a big impact very quickly. These are not things that we have to accept um, as the status quo. We've got to continue to fight back and then you know, shut down some of these bad faith arguments. John Kellner, DA for the 18th. Thank you for your time, my man. Thanks, George. Go Army. Now we're out of time. You've been listening to the Advanced Colorado Rundown, brought to you by Advanced Colorado, the conservative thought leader, driving dialogue and solutions to Colorado's most critical policy issues. Find them at advancecolorado.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.